Before beginning, let's cover a few housekeeping items. Firstly, the show is for informational purposes only. Secondly, the show is made for people with little to no understanding of Bitcoin. The information included are directionally accurate generalizations. Our goal is to simplify as much as possible. And lastly, if you're more of a visual learner, head over to our YouTube channel, also called Weights and Measures. You can find a link in the show notes of each episode. Welcome to the Weights and Measures podcast. Hello, and welcome back to the Weights and Measures podcast. I'm John Galt. And I'm Alexi. And so far in the show, we have done the what, who, why, and where of Bitcoin episodes. This is the when episode. Which I personally think that this one is actually a very, very important one because as nice as it is to know why we should be buying or who created it, um, when it will go mainstream, I think is a really, really big question that a lot of people have. And also, how will Bitcoin going mainstream even look like? Um, Bitcoin going mainstream will depend on who you ask, um, what country they live in what their goal is, what their standard of something going mainstream is. All those things will vary depending on who you talk to and who you ask. But um, we're going to do our best to generalize here with this with this show as usual. Um, so Bitcoin going mainstream. The first thing that is worth pointing out is managing expectations. So some people online, popular names, or just on the mainstream media or whatever, people's understandings of when Bitcoin will be mainstream, quote unquote, some people think it'll be like, some people think it's already too late, like it hasn't happened yet, so it can't happen. Some people think it's maybe 50 years from now or 100 years from now. A more leveled approach um, within the community, if I was to generalize what the community thinks, um, and again, there's going to be discrepancies on the answers, but um, a lot of people think we have Bitcoin mainstream adoption already. Others think it's a couple years away. One thing that is important to point out is we already have widespread recognition, meaning every person basically walking on the street, if you went and asked them if they have heard of Bitcoin, they would say yes. Whether or not they know anything is a whole different question, but we have widespread recognition. Bitcoin is, is 15 years old. It's been around for a long time, but in the grand scheme, it's still very young. The fact that as many people know about it is, in a way, already showing promising signs of, of adoption and acceptance. When you're in the Bitcoin communities online, they are constantly talking about delayed gratification and long time horizons, meaning they're not buying Bitcoin with the impression that they're going to be wealthy in a year or two. They're buying Bitcoin with the expectation that in 10 to 15 years, they will be able to reap the benefits of acquiring it today. Yeah, that's like the Stanford Marshmallow experiment that was conducted on delayed gratification in 1972, which I found really interesting. They took kids, put them in a room, they gave them one marshmallow, and they said, if you don't eat this marshmallow for 15 minutes, you will get a second marshmallow in 15 minutes. And what they found is, so they followed these kids over the course of actually 40 years, which I found really, really surprising. And so 
what they found is the kids that actually waited the 15 minutes to get two marshmallows were more successful in later life. And so they measured these outcomes by SAT scores, uh, body mass index, or BMI, and just their educational attainment, as well as Mm. some other life measures. So delayed gratification, it isn't something that's just going to benefit you in Bitcoin, but just it's been studied that those that know how to wait and, you know, maybe go without today or tomorrow for something better weeks or months from now that they just do better in life. Yeah, it's a powerful concept. Um, the author of the Bitcoin standard, Saifedean Amus, has kind of introduced, I don't think he created this concept, but he kind of repopularized the concept of what's called time preference. Um, having a low time preference means you have high delayed gratification, meaning you're a two marshmallow person. You can wait for tomorrow. If you have high time preference, you are living for today. You don't feel like waiting to do anything. You want to just spend now because tomorrow's never promised. Um, YOLO, as the kids Which, say. Which, I mean, you honestly can't really blame the millennials or the Gen Zers for no. having that kind of mindset. Right. That's right. You can't. It's just a symptom of... of... We've all been in economic instability for so long. I don't think yeah. most of us have ever even experienced what prosperity looks like like the generations that did before us of course there are are outliers like those born into wealthier families that have had exceptional stability and of course they have a different outlook than the mass of us but that is just a small a small percentage of millennials and gen zers i would say right even the concept of the savings account i mean 30 years ago your savings uh interest rate was you know 10 8 percent so you would put money in your savings account and watch it build 10% a year, whereas millennials, our savings account is below the inflation rate at like 2%. I remember when I opened up my first bank account and they were saying, yeah, and this is the benefit of going with a smaller credit union is because you get a high interest percentage on a savings account. Of course, I was 18 and I had absolutely no clue wh- what that meant. But that high interest rate is what they called it was, I think it was 2.5% if I <laughs> Amazing. if I remember correctly. Yeah. Just next to nothing. And now it's even less, but... It kind right. of changes, which has so, been interesting. Yeah, I mean, Bitcoiners are huge on incentives. So if you incentivize saving, and that's what a higher savings account interest rate would be, when you take that away, it shouldn't come as a surprise that people are suddenly living for today more than they were when there was a higher savings account 30 years ago. So the Bitcoiners are huge on this. It's something you will constantly see in the online communities, mostly on Twitter, or now called X. You will see people relentlessly talking about low time preference, delayed gratification, buy Bitcoin today with the expectation that you're not going to touch it for 10 plus years, and then you will be able to benefit from it down the road. This is not a get rich quick scheme at all. It's actually a don't become poor from inflation savings account that is separate from the state. So, and this is a completely different, this may come to a shock to many of our listeners because they're under the impression that Bitcoin and crypto more broadly, all the other cryptocurrencies are nothing but get rich quick. Hope to just hit it big on the casino, essentially, like you're playing the slot machine and just pick the right crypto and have it go up a bunch and then sell it and make a bunch of money. And that is, that stigma is true of the crypto scene more broadly, but of Bitcoin, it's a completely different mindset. So these two camps are playing very different games. Um, So to answer the question of when will Bitcoin go mainstream, 
there isn't really a set date or time. It's just kind of more of a waiting game, correct? Correct. A lot of people equate Bitcoin's current state to the internet in 1995. So the internet in 1995 was was terrible, right? Compared yeah. to today. It was, when you pick up the phone, you hear noises. Yeah, and it was the dial-up internet. You couldn't download anything. There wasn't any apps. There weren't huge popular websites. And Bitcoin's at that same point where there's a lot being built on Bitcoin right now. There's more innovation than you can comprehend. But it takes time and years to slowly be fleshed out. So we are equivalent to the internet in 1995, which brings me to the story of the Eternal September. Have you heard of the Eternal September story? <laughs> no. Okay, so the Eternal September story is an interesting thing that happened with early internet days. So the Eternal September happened in 1993. Up to 1993, there was these conferences where, let's call it internet nerds, would get together and have the conference like in physical space where they would meet and talk about the internet. And mainly it was AOL, the instant messaging. Mm-hmm. And they would get together every September and you would see a spike in AOL downloads. But then every it would, September. Every September. But then it would peter off and dissipate and kind of go back to what it was a couple months later. And then they'd have the conference again and it would downloads would spike and then it would go away. In 1993, they had what was called the eternal September where downloads exploded just as they had the previous years. But then it never came back down. So it's important to point out that the eternal September happened in 1993. That was before Google, which came in 1998. Facebook, which came in 2004, those things were the huge drivers of internet adoption and they weren't built yet. It was just AOL, which was still a very primitive use case of the internet. So it's just important to point out and, and take that into consideration when you're comparing when is Bitcoin going to have its eternal September equivalent. And it's hard to tell because we're living in the moment. It's hard to tell. In hindsight, it'll be easier to say when it was. But we have a lot of things that check the box of mainstream adoption with, with Bitcoin right now. Things in Bitcoin that have checked the box of mainstream adoption would look like, um, well, there's $40 billion per day of, of transactions. That's not nothing. $40 billion is quite a bit. That's every day on average. But then there's things like Tesla owning Bitcoin on their company's balance sheet, like hundreds of millions of dollars. There's things like Fidelity, the world's third or fourth largest financial manager in the world, being extremely public and pro-Bitcoin. Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, going on cable news talking about how Bitcoin is hope and an asset for the future. Shell Oil, Exxon Mobil Oil, doing pilot programs for Bitcoin mining to help their operations. And then you have things like countries where you have Bitcoin mining is exploding all over the world, particularly in the USA, where you have states like Texas, Georgia, Kentucky, Tennessee, Wyoming, and Pennsylvania with enormous mining operations and favorable policies and laws that are helping Bitcoin adoption spread because it offers jobs and income and tax revenue for the states. Um, and then outside of the USA, you have countries like El Salvador, um, which we'll talk more about here in a minute. But then there's countries like Bhutan and Costa Rica and the country of Oman, all have huge mining operations that they're public about. And then there's some outliers like uh, Venezuela, which the country had big Bitcoin mining operations and then the government confiscated it. And we can just presume that they're just mining Bitcoin with it to this day. They're not public about it, but they confiscated it. Same with Russia. They confiscated some huge Bitcoin mining operations a year or two ago. And then in uh, Ukraine, there's a funny story where they had a nuclear reactor and they had to, they got a couple of their engineers in trouble because the engineers were mining Bitcoin with the nuclear power of the power plant years ago. You have these stories of widespread adoption 
and some would say mass adoption all across the world. It's just, you're not hearing about it on your day to day, but it is clearly gaining traction. Amongst all these other countries and then even states within the United States. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Um, Mind if you're done. Yep. My next question is, I think one that a lot of people have, when will I be able to buy coffee with Bitcoin or groceries, just really anything, something very basic? Yeah, that's a, it, so this one is interesting because we here in America, the biggest use case for Americans in Bitcoin, because we don't have any issues with transacting on our day-to-day lives. We can go to the store and spend, we can send money to our friends and family, dollars over, you know, Zelle or, or Cash App or Venmo, and it's pretty convenient and easy. So our main use case in this country and a lot of other developed countries is just using Bitcoin as a store of value which is to say you're acquiring Bitcoin and you're holding Bitcoin, not because it has innovative payments, but because it is a scarce asset that can protect your wealth from inflation, from government money printing, which is happening ever more. So Bitcoin is seen as, in large part, in the West and in the particularly in America, as just a as a store of value from inflation. But if you go to a country like El Salvador or Venezuela or Argentina or Zimbabwe or Turkey, where they have rampant inflation, you're seeing not only the citizens there adopt Bitcoin to save their wealth from inflation, but also just in their day-to-day transactions. You have vendors and small businesses who are saying, we don't want to accept, you know, the Venezuelan Bolivar for our bananas or your coffee. We want Satoshis, which are your Bitcoin subunits. And that's just purely out of just common sense. Like these people don't want the local currency that's being debased 10, 20, 30, 50% a month. They just want Satoshis. They want Bitcoin. Even though Bitcoin is volatile, they still are choosing to be paid in the thing that isn't guaranteed to be debased. Well, and that was something that you mentioned that I found really, really interesting is in countries where there is inflation that is more rampant than it is here, like in the US or Canada, that when you switch their currency to like, for example, like the Turkish lira to Bitcoin, that the price just, it looks like it skyrockets. Hmm. Correct? That's what you were telling me. Right. But the US, like we just aren't there yet in terms of how our like how bad our our inflation is like we're just the best currency on the worst block yes that's that's exactly right even looking at best house on the best house on the world yes that's right looking at the bitcoin price in canadian dollars versus american dollars since 2020 the canadian dollars have been debased more than the american dollars so bitcoin is higher relative to the Bitcoin price in dollars, just because Canada's printed more money than Never America has. Yes, it, you can see that more clearly in in countries with high, way higher inflation. Like if you looked at Bitcoin priced in Turkish lira, the Bitcoin price is already higher than it's ever been, ever, yeah. ever. And even though it's down 50% roughly from its all-time high in American dollars. So you have this weird, it's kind of like a really strange, abstract, hard thing to wrap your mind around. But essentially countries that are printing more of their local government currency the price of bitcoin in that local currency is going up faster than other countries so just so just basically if you type into google usd to btc and then you change it to lira to btc Mm -hmm. or yen to btc or canadian dollar to btc you're going to see a a very different chart that's right than what we that than what we hear in america typically compare our charts to and therefore our value of bitcoin that's right 
And it's kind of a hard thing it's to wrap. It's very, very abstract. Very abstract, hard to conceptualize how it's all going down. But the big picture that Bitcoiners often point at is they're not really, eventually you stop caring about what the price of Bitcoin is in USD because you realize it's valuable no matter what. Yeah, one Bitcoin can't be debased, whereas the value of everything in dollars and in every currency that's being debased, aka inflated, mm -hmm. everything's going to go up. I mean, this, a Snickers bar in 1980 was 50 cents now it's $2.50 so even when I was a kid it was 75 cents for yeah. an almond joy or a Hershey's right. bar and you would ask your mom for it and it was great because it was under a dollar yeah now it's tw three times as much yeah. and it's twice it's half as much your, yeah, your Snickers bar is smaller and that's happening with houses, it's happening with stocks, It's but they're all to varying degrees. I mean, and gold. Cars aren't made as well as they were. Right. So all these things are connected and these companies have to either raise the price of their goods or lessen the quality of the good and leave the price the same. Because when your money is debasing, you have to make a choice of either raising the price, then your customers don't like you and they'll go to someone else. Or rather than raise the price, you just lessen the quality of your product, ma making it cheaper to make, then you can just leave it at the same price. So like what Snickers and these candy bars, it's called shrinkflation, where your bag of chips is full of air, <laughs> the chips are thinner and made with crappier, cheaper ingredients, yet the price is about the same. Is about the same. Or but it's still it going... did cost cheaper to manufacture. That's right, that's right. So and they're that's just... kind of where they cut, the, cut that yes, corner. Yes, exactly. It just forces people to cut corners or raise the price, yes. and most people are going to try to cut the corners. And so Bitcoin's volatility will decrease with... Yeah, so people are big, very concerned with when will the Bitcoin volatility yes. lessen. And that's just simply a matter of size of the market cap, market capitalization of Bitcoin, which is just the total value of all the Bitcoins combined, which right now is around $700 billion. You just find the market cap of, any, of anything by taking the current price per unit, timesing it by however many units there are available. Yeah, so right now there's like 19 and a half million Bitcoin in circulation. We take that number, times it by the current price, which today is 33,000, and you get a market cap of 700 billion. So when Bitcoin's market cap is 10 trillion, the volatility will be less at that point. So you'll have less crazy up and down and in, in the, in the price of things. And just more people comfortably parking their exactly. money it, in Bitcoin. Exactly. They're less concerned with the volatility. But eventually, I mean, the Bitcoiners are big on the volatility is just an illusion of pricing it in dollars. Like Bitcoin's the least volatile yeah. money on the planet. Price because, it in Canadian dollar. <clears> you'll be happy. You'll be. It's, it's just a matter of, yeah, what are you denominating Bitcoin in? All we know, Bitcoin is a constant unit of measure because you can't debase it. Whereas everything else, even the dollar, is being debased. So it's a, it's like equivalent to a measuring stick, changing in size constantly. Yeah. Whereas Bitcoin is this like constant. Inches and your centimeters. Yeah. How, imagine trying to build something with a oh, yeah. changing. You have a twenty-four inch waist one day. And yeah. Six the next. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You didn't really lose weight or gain yeah. weight. You're just cheating on the measurement. Yeah. <clears throat> Bitcoin. Is saying let's stop changing the length of our measuring stick. Just Keep leave it, it the, the same. same. Yeah, exactly. So, so Bitcoin looks volatile, but in reality, it's, it's the most it's stable. the most stable currency in the world. It doesn't change its monetary, its total number of units. Mm -hmm. A big thing with adoption that you're starting to see is um, they're called POS systems, point of sale, and these are all in your small businesses. Um, very frequently, like you'll Square. see Square payments or Toast mm -hmm. or Clover. 
these companies have announced partnership with Bitcoin companies where they are launching pilot programs where they can figure out how to incorporate Bitcoin payments. So to answer your kind of bring it back to your question of mm -hmm. when can you spend Bitcoin to buy your coffee, that is slowly happening. And the reason it's happening is because these businesses, these small businesses are just going to act rational. And rather than take a two to 4% haircut each year by Visa and MasterCard who charge fees, they will just accept Bitcoin instead, which have microscopic fees. And the company will say, wow, we're saving two to 4% each year by just accepting Bitcoin for payments. Which will be great for the small businesses where that two to 4% is actually meaningful. Yes, it makes a difference. It makes a big difference. So that's why companies will start doing it, but that isn't gonna happen overnight. It takes a long time, decade to slowly see payments be incorporated into companies. But the thing is, the, the caveat with that is if you go to a country like El Salvador, where Bitcoin was made legal tender by their president, every single store there has to legally accept Bitcoin. The funny thing about El Salvador is there's 193 US companies that have stores in El Salvador. Can I guess? Starbucks? Starbucks is one. McDonald's? McDonald's is one. Walmart, only because I saw one in Mexico. <laughs> yes, you're correct. Walmart, I got a couple more. FedEx, oh. John Deere, Microsoft, Google, Cisco, um, United Airlines, Delta Airlines, and American Airlines. Which just huge. Gigantic. And that's just to name a few, right? There's 193 total. The key takeaway is those companies had to figure out on their side of business how to accept Bitcoin. So they already know how to. So they already know how to. Exactly. So now they can take that knowledge. Like, so when the day comes in America, let's say in five or however many years, these things are impossible to predict exactly, but we're just forecasting the, the trend. We're playing the long game. We're forecasting the trend. We're extrapolating Save it your out. Marshmallow. The marshmallow kids are thinking ahead. Where is this all going? Well, you now have humongous corporations, the biggest in the world, who now provably know how to accept Bitcoin for their companies. Mm -hmm. So when that day comes, as anyone's guess, I'm so just... So you can't really make the argument, oh, we don't know how. Yeah, exactly. They, because we already know how. That's right. Well, not that's we, right. but they. They, huh. the companies themselves, yeah. the CEOs, the people in charge yeah. of payments. They, yeah, whoever. Knows. They know how, that's for sure. Yeah. Do you have another question? I don't have any more questions. If there's anything else that you want to touch base on. Yeah, one more thing is, so with accepting payments here in the United States... The big thing to point out, we are a privileged people, but America is, Americans are only 5% of the world. It's important to realize that there's billions of people living in double to triple digit inflation, and they are looking to gain access to the global economy. They would like to transact and trade and sell things online to people in other countries. This is not possible with traditional banking systems, and a lot of these people don't even have access to banks. I mean, how would someone in a remote village in Nigeria who has a little e-commerce store sell something to someone in a neighboring country? Like, good luck. It's very challenging. You're lucky if you could do it. The banks are going to take huge fees. Western Union is going to take huge fees. Even sending money through them internationally is painful. It's brutal. The wire transfer systems, all these guys charge huge fees. And every single bank that you go to tells you a different set of rules. Yes, and they can change the rates. Your money's stuck in limbo for weeks while you wait for it. I mean, it's a nightmare. Bitcoin comes along and says, okay, all of this is now irrelevant. Here's an open monetary system that's neutral, can't be debased, can't be censored, and all you need is someone with a smartphone, and you can send it to them across the planet instantaneously for a tiny fee, like pennies. Mm-hmm. Pennies. So all that is happening right now, and that's just going to continue growing. So when someone asks, well, when is Bitcoin going to go mainstream? It's like, well, by what metric 
Like what, what? Because it's already mainstream. It's mainstream in, other places. in many places across the world, growing insanely fast. Like just because you're not looking and hearing about yeah. it on the the news when you wake up, doesn't mean these things aren't growing quickly behind the scenes. Um, and it's going to come to surprise a lot of people. You will most likely like to make a prediction here. This coming election, Bitcoin will be high on the list of priorities for the presidential candidates, and it will be discussed constantly during the elections. The Bitcoin halving will be coming right around the election time. Everyone will be seeing Bitcoin halving, Bitcoin in the election, presidents being pro-Bitcoin. I think that will be a great thing to talk about next time. I think we might have to do an episode on that, yeah. Bitcoin and politics. Bitcoin and politics, that's a good idea. But that pretty much wraps it up for when the win of Bitcoin is just kind of depends on how low your time preference is, if you are patient, and what your expectations are. Even though Bitcoin may not seem mainstream right now, it is the 12th largest asset on the planet right now. If that isn't mainstream adoption, I don't know what is. It's literally larger than 99% of all companies on the planet right now. Like there's like eight companies that are bigger than Bitcoin. I would say that's pretty mainstream. Mm -hmm. Thank you for tuning in to the win of Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. We will... uh, As always, it's been a pleasure. It has been a pleasure. We will have more episodes coming out. This is just kind of our base layer for beginners to get into and, and kind of catch their breath and get us up to speed update of Bitcoin. And we'll keep coming out with other episodes.